0: Welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Sufert. My guest today is Ramiz Tasse, the co-founder and president of Antenna, a consumer and market data platform covering subscription services. Prior to founding Antenna, Tasse led a handful of startups to best-in-class growth milestones, including Axios, where he helped scale the company beyond 2 million subscribers, and Mike, where he helped scale the company beyond 400 million video views. In this episode of the podcast, Ramiz and I discuss the future of audience development, management, and targeting for digital marketers. As the privacy landscape changes, the level of granularity available to marketers in developing audience targeting diminishes. As a result, marketers must make use of coarser and more aggregated sets of data to determine which audiences and groups of users are most relevant to their products and where those audiences can be reached. Ramiz and I discuss how panel data can fit into a marketer's audience development strategy, how measurement is evolving as the privacy landscape changes, and the feedback loop between measurement and targeting. Please enjoy this conversation with Ramiz Tase.
1: Ramiz, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. There's still snow on the ground here, unfortunately. Oh, well, I'm in a
0: t-shirt and shorts, so yeah, <laughs> uh, I uh, feel for you. I don't know what
1: that means. Did the ground dog, I don't know what the ground dog said, if there's still snow on the ground right now. Longer winter.
0: Yeah, I'm embarrassingly remiss on my Groundhog Day film uh, memory here, so I'll have to rewatch it. That's a sign that I I need to rewatch that movie. Okay, so I have just introduced you, but maybe you could introduce yourself. It'd be great to just uh, hear your background in your own words.
1: For sure. So I'm co founder and president of a measurement and data company called Antenna right now that focuses on the subscription economy. But for the last several years before that, I was, I think, like you. Trying to figure out what this new title of head of growth meant, no one else in the world could tell me. And so, you know, I was focused a lot on those elements of user acquisition, retention, monetization, connecting data, collecting data actually first, and then connecting it to decision-making, specifically in the marketing, pricing, distribution kind of parts of the world, all within the kind of digital media ecosystem, most recently at Axios, the digital news publisher, before we started Antenna. And, you know, really, our goal with Antenna was to take that ethos around a lot of these subscription metrics and KPIs and bring them to a broader swath of research and analytics professionals. You know, when you're working at a company, you can only go one company by one company. But when you build an enterprise software company, you can serve hundreds and thousands of companies at the same time. So it's really a continuation of what I've been doing for the last several years beforehand, but hopefully with a little bit more impact and scale.
0: Yeah, I think I became aware of Antenna through a tweet that Matthew Ball share, shared with just kind of like streaming services churn over time. And I think that that was a, a data point that a lot of people probably became aware of your company through because it was, really, it was really interesting to just see it. And I don't think that had ever been like collected and kind of you know aggregated in that way in that comparative way before. That's how I became aware of your company. But I think the genesis of this conversation is and I've I've been writing a lot about this for the last 18 months is, is that, you know, the marketing landscape is fundamentally changing and we're losing this kind of event stream, you know, hub and spoke model access to conversion data. And so the reliance that marketers had on the ad platforms to target relevant audiences on their behalf, right? To use their machinery, their data, or the data that they collect from their advertising partners, the data that they warehouse anyway, the reliance on them to use all of those resources to target relevant audiences is being undermined. It's disintegrating, right? Like their ability to do that. And so advertisers now have to build those capabilities in-house and they have to start relying on new data sets, right? Like de facto status of Facebook or Google or whoever as the audience identifying function for a marketing team is untenable, right? That just can't work. And so advertisers have to, adapts to this changing environment by being better at defining audiences themselves, using more coarse data, using sort of like more group level, you know, definitions, and then also in, in their internal measurement, right, and their ability to sort of look at just, you know, inflows and outflows, inputs and outputs, and determine, you know, where their money is being best spent. And I wanted to talk to you because you and your company, you, you're sort of at the forefront of that, especially on the audience definition side, but also on the sort of measurement side. And I think that's the basis for a really great conversation. So that's kind of what I want to cover today.
1: I, I love it. And, you know, I think when you think about this world of either panel-based or direct measurement, there's kind of one fundamental question that we're trying to answer, right? If I'm a brand, where should I try to reach my potential customers or existing customers? How? With what message? And once I've actually put that message out there, does it work, right? And I think what you're saying is the fundamental way we do each of those things is about to dramatically change. And there's not actually that many clear answers yet. It's kind of surprising. I, I think probably sitting in our seats, we would have expected to know exactly what the future will look like in, in terms of how we measure all of that stuff. But, you know, it's, it's going to get there.
0: Well, it's funny because, yes, and there's kind of like a uh, innovator's dilemma, Issue here, right? The big platforms uh, were never incentivized to spend a lot of time thinking about this, you know, sort of prior to some sort of external catalyst, right? Which the external catalyst, you know, from in my world, like the on the mobile side, the catalyst was Apple, right? And and on the on the desktop side, it was Apple too. It was ITP, but you know, Safari as is doesn't have as much of a command on engagement on, on desktop. You know that's Chrome is, is sort of the, the more important. Well, call it the the larger browser, right? Um, and they've yet to deprecate cookies, but but Apple does have that sort of command on mobile, right? And so that was the catalyst. But you know these companies, you know the the platform companies, the ad the ad platform companies were never incentivized to think about this in a sort of like serious and like preparatory way. The companies were the individuals running the teams weren't, because no one wants to build a missile system to blow up the asteroid. You know what I mean? If you're making a lot of money building missile systems to blow up, you know, other countries or whatever. I don't know. That that metaphor got really dark and weird, but (laughs) in any case, they didn't, right? They didn't prepare for this, and like that was evident. That was made evident in the kind of two quarters earnings post ATT going wide in June. They had no plan, or the plan they had was not viable, and and so now they're having to rebuild these systems from scratch, right? And so well, okay, we would have expected them to have some kind of tools ready, but they didn't. And now there's like this whole primordial soup of startups that are emerging to service this new landscape. Right. And it's really fascinating. And I think it's really exciting. There's a lot of opportunity right now to build big businesses that do those things. But a a lot of these companies are startups, they're startup scale and they're, you know, they're, they're growing fast and they're raising lots of money, but nonetheless, they're not Facebook scale. Right. And so it's, I'm glad, I'm happy to be be speaking to you because you're, you're part of that, group of, you know, successful startups that have, you know, raised a lot of money and, and are, are scaling to service this new requirement, this new need.
1: Definitely. And, and you know, I think, um, why don't we dive in? Why don't we dive
0: Let's in? Let's do it. So just to kick it off and to establish, you know, the sort of baseline here, explain what panel data is, how it has been used and packaged historically by companies like Nielsen.
1: Great place to start. There's some version of the bundling, unbundling quote that everyone loves with you know panel-based and direct-based measurement, but it sounds like what's old is new again, and but with a twist, right? And so let's talk about the old version first. And uh, to define it very naively here, a panel is just using a small subgroup of individuals to discern behavior of the entire population. That was the dominant form of measurement and marketing until what a decade ago, with the advent of direct, kind of more one-to-one measurement you know, that the scaled marketing giants, Facebook, Google, others really made possible. But there's a couple of things that were pretty unique to that first version of panel-based measurement that I actually don't think are true of today's panel-based measurement. And the first thing was the recruitment methodology, right? So the way they'd recruit these folks is quite literally by paying them to fill out a survey. Might have looked like a scantron what I took the SATs on. And you know, being a Nielsen home was a a badge of honor. And you know, we we should have had my co-founder Jonathan, who spent many years as an executive at Nielsen on here to tell the story there. But you were quite literally going and finding these people and asking them questions. And there's a lot of issues with that that we now know. But, you know, you mentioned Nielsen. So let's talk about the most famous panel of all time, the Nielsen's TV rating, Nielsen TV Ratings panel. From a panel of about 50,000 people, they're able to infer what everyone in the United States is watching for how long and what else they're buying to inform where brands spend their advertising dollars. And so the gap between the 200 million American adults or whatever it might be and 50,000 Panelists is enormous, right? So there's a lot of work, it turns out, that actually goes into making that happen, going from 50,000 and making it represent 200 million, even like remotely accurately, right? And so that's where all of these brands, whether it was Nielsen, Comscore, Cantor, IRI, built their value and their moats. It was the soup. How do you go from 50K to 200M reliably? on an apples to apples basis. So you're, the brands that actually transact on, on you can actually trust that what you're measuring is accurate. And so I'll, I'll pause there before I go on for any reactions or, or questions or places you want to dig into further.
0: No, I'm glad you started there because that is, I think, one of the biggest frustrations. And it's it's funny because it's also like, I think that, that kind of like TV advertising is sort of a, a like an operational kind of like fulcrum point for a lot of like direct response advertisers. It's like you build like a really highly efficient, highly functional org. You scale the spend to whatever. And I'm talking like from the perspective, of like a startup, right? So I'm like the head of growth or whatever, like to, to your point earlier about like, what is the head, of So I'm the head of growth. And then we build out this like really fantastically efficient organization we're spending on Facebook. We've got to the hour LTV estimates coming in on, you know, day zero cohorts. And, you know, I just feel like we've maximized our efficiency. And then I take us to some moment, maybe it's like a series A, maybe it's a series B. And it's like, oh, well, now we have to get serious about marketing let's hire a CMO. And, you know, they bring in some white haired guy and he's like, we got to go to TV. And it's like, okay, well, what's your plan there? And it's, you know, you've got, you go to the meeting and you're like, well, here's what we're doing on Facebook. And here's like, you know, here, show me how you've been spending your budget. And you show some dashboard, you show some spreadsheet and like, whoa, 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 what is this? Like, I don't want to look at some complicated spreadsheet. I want to see like a single slide. Tell me where you've been spending money. Cause that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, now we're going to TV and I'm going to spin up an agency relationship and, or an IO with an agency. And we're going to go after these markets. Cause I think they're, and like, here's the data that we're using. And it's like something like Nielsen or whatever. And it's like, this is why we should go after these markets. And this is why we should use TV. And then, you know, your head just explodes, right? You're the, you're the sort of like, you know, sort of like very sort of like quantitatively oriented person who's sort of subdivided those markets into like very discrete sort of audiences. And and you're saying, well, how how are you going to then all of a sudden take this really broad based approach? Right. And then why are you my boss? You know, and that, that kind of thing happens, but that's that fulcrum point. That's that like, okay, we've done all we can on direct response, or that's what the perception is. And now we've got to go to TV. And so we're completely changing our approach. And that's actually not what the really sophisticated brands do. It's not this throw money out there and then let's just like hope and pray. I mean, even though the audiences are coarser than what you can define with direct response, because you've got just more transparency. And even though the sort of channels are broader, and even though the sort of the conversions are sort of less directly observable, there's a lot of data that you can use to build an actual performance model. And my sort of like rallying cry for the last couple of years has been Brand marketing is not the opposite of performance marketing. These are not two sides yeah. of a coin. The, the, performance marketing is a framework, right? And brand marketing is like sort of one tactic. Direct response marketing is another tactic, but they should both fit under the same framework. And you can use this data sets that exist to do performance marketing with like coarser audience definitions and you know channels that are less sort of like directly observable with respect to conversion. So I'm glad you started there. I think it would be interesting to hear like maybe unpack a little bit. You talked about how these companies have these methodologies for taking 50k to 200 million. Can you walk us through like what are some of those methodologies?
1: Yeah, and so before I lose the thread, I think you're you're on to something kind of very good here, which is basically the difference between, it's almost like there's three tiers. There's like the extremely coarse panel. And honestly, you might even consider the Nielsen TV ratings panel to be at the extremely coarse side of things, right? You can cut it by demographics and some behavioral things. But at the end of the day, if you cut 50,000 people by more than one or two attributes, you run out of people and you're at one or two as a sample size. Right. And so there's, there's issues there. There are a number of what I would call panel based solutions emerging that are not 50,000 person panels. They might be 10 million person panels. Right. And so you actually can start to get coarse, but still really reliable segmentation there. And then I guess like the, the kind of previously thought of hallowed ground was the one to one, you know, attribution, which is not, it's increasingly not possible in today's Mm -hmm. framework, but to, to answer your, your, your question, they got really good at these methodologies, right? So like re- reverse ranking statistical analysis to, to make sure that the bias of your population matched the bias of the actual sample under measurement. That was the secret sauce of a lot of these folks. And so you'd get questions like, how can we tell that your pan- panel is representative of the population? How can we trust that your panelists have accepted measurement? Because if they haven't accepted measurement, then tomorrow when you go back to measure them again, they might actually fall out of the panel, right? So panel stability was like another huge thing. And then, of course, the last question is, can I cohort it in specific enough ways? And so this is a really great illustration of where technological limitations drive business rules. Mm -hmm. The reason behind TV advertising's focus on demographic segmentation, women in this geographic market, in this broad-based age bracket, as the way to buy media is because the only way to measure it and target against it in a world of a 50,000 person panel was broad based demographic Mm -hmm. targeting. And so now what we're seeing is actually better ways technologically are possible, even before you get to one to one. But the business rules then have to get rewritten, right? Like the people making the buying decisions and the marketers and the brands need to update their business rules based on now what's technologically possible. And that's actually like the kind of creative destruction that's going on right now inside marketing departments. So we could talk a little bit more about that, but the one last thing I'll throw out there is something that we thought would be important that I think you know, a brand like Nielsen really sold as important, and it was important until recently, the ability to measure across different surfaces where you'd market in a somewhat apples to apples basis. TV wasn't the only place that people advertised, there was of home and there was local TV and radio. And what Nielsen did very well was they united under a specific kind of unit of success, all of those those different mediums, they to date still haven't been able to do that with the digital mediums. And it's because the digital mediums are owned by walled gardens that are very mm-hmm. sophisticated about the value of the data they they, they own. But the other side of it is that the, the advertising services, the inventory is so big that you can run a business you know, until a very late stage, just advertising on Google and Facebook. And so mm-hmm. you don't actually need cross-category measurement to the same degree that you used to, which is a kind of another interesting thing that they were really good at, but became less relevant than possible. And so I'll transition here and I'll say, all right, so what's next? Well, there's three trends that we just talked about that are converging on each other. Well, we talked about two of the three. One, consumer privacy, one-to-one measurement is is gone, right? I, I don't know how else to say it. Two, the shortcomings of one-to-one measurement around out-of-home TV, places mm-hmm. that are outside of the yeah. Facebook, Google ecosystem. And then three, and I'll foreshadow maybe the next topic, a radical shift in recruitment methodology, which means it's possible to actually run a panel that's not 50,000, but actually like 10 million mm-hmm. panelists. And I think that's the catalyst for... The next generation of panel-based measurement to, to really take hold those three things yeah
0: i might even add a fourth one there which is and it was like this kind of incipient trend even prior to att or, but something that people were waking up to was just the impossibility of claiming that a lot of this measurement was mm. even deterministic right because it wasn't it, yeah. it wasn't like on mobile you know in the us 40 percent of iphone owners had lat turned off Right. And so, you know, we were being sold this data, right. Essentially from these, the attribution companies that was packaged as this is reliable, precise, one-to-one attribution data. And it wasn't right. Because let's say that there was an ever increasing, but getting to the point where it was coming almost close to like a majority status, you know, sort of non-availability of IDFAs, right. And the walled gardens were attributing on their own. So the the attribution companies weren't sort of like all seeing eye of Sauron refs, referees that they claimed they were. They were just reporting what they observed, but they were not able to sort of dictate what Facebook and Google and whoever and Snap and Twitter, yeah. uh, well, Tw- Twitter didn't self-attribute, but, but they weren't able to dictate what those companies charged for. And so you had a tremendous amount of double billing going on. Right. And just fingerprinted, you know, attributions that weren't that precision deterministic one to one attribution. Right. So I think a lot of people were waking up to that and they were just they were determining for themselves. Like we need some kind of probabilistic model that serves as like a reality check on what we're getting from these, you know, quote unquote, deterministic tools providers, because we know that what they're doing is no longer really even um, like the overwhelming majority deterministic. There was a big chunk of this that was just, you know, fingerprinted and, and probabilistic
1: anyway. It's like what we're saying is something actually like pretty profound, which is that it's not either one to one or panel based. It's actually more of like a continuum and you got two ends of the spectrum. And we were never actually at the one to one end of the spectrum. And by the way, as panel based gets better, we're getting closer to the midpoint, you know, of of that we were worse than we thought we were in the one to one era and we're probably better than we. think we're gonna be in the panel based the new panel based era. The silver lining here is it's gonna take a couple of cycles because no one prepared for this, oddly. But if the measurement technologies are not much, much worse than they currently are, you know, like that's a really good news for D 2 C brands specifically and in general, consumer brands that are sophisticated marketers.
0: Yeah. And they could do some good news. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so we talked about it kind of from the the measurement company side. Can we talk about this just kind of flip the perspective to the marketer side? How how do marketers utilize this? Well, so let's kind of break this up into how did marketers utilize this kind of data sort of historically? And maybe we can even talk about like the kind of mad men era Eric, this, this kind of this idea, this idea of like panel data and like uh, focus scripts and stuff comes up a ton in Mad Men, right? And like Mad Men yeah. is actually a really, really interesting, uh, like keyhole view into like the advertising era of, yeah. you know, the the sort of like nascent advertising era. So maybe like kind of historically, when when this was all there was, how was it used? How had this been used? Kind of in as um, the kind of idea of deterministic attribution sort of flourished, and people believed they were getting like one to one sort of discrete attributions at the user level? And then how will this be used going forward? Uh, I think that's like, it'd be yeah. interesting to, to kind of explore that that evolution.
1: That's great. And, and you know, I, I bet you have a perspective here too, so I'd love you to fill in fill in some of this. I'm a student of history, but I'm not a, an old gray-haired CMO that you described uh, earlier. So I, I didn't live through this. But, you know, my understanding of that Mad Men era was uh, very sentiment-driven, right? You get people in a room, you pay them to be in a room, And you ask them the questions and they they answer them, right? And so you can kind of get a sense of, did it work? If Mm -hmm. you ask a bunch of people the same questions that saw your ad and that didn't see your ad, you can kind of tease apart the difference in response, right? Their affinity towards a specific brand after having seen that ad. Really rudimentary way of doing things because there's, as we know, all kinds of biases that you introduce when you ask someone, hey, do you like Coke? right? And then you ask them two weeks later, do you like Coke? Well, you've got them thinking about Coke two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. They might have bought yeah. Coke for no reason, certainly not an advertisement, but because you actually advertised it to them by asking them the question in the first place. And very difficult to do any sort of segment analysis on 10 people in a room, right? You can't say, hey, one person out of the 10 was a man and liked Coke, and therefore 10% of men like, like Coke. Doesn't really work like that from a statistical significance standpoint, but you know, on a fifty thousand person panel, which is the, the Nielsen one, it does work like that. There are statistical methods to get from rough demographic segments on the panel to those same rough demographic segments on the population, and Nielsen's gotten really sophisticated at this. And there's other brands like like Kantar and and others that that have as well. And that's what powered all of TV advertising. So I think we've talked a little bit about. How marketers used it in kind of like the historical times. As the deterministic era heated up, my perception was really that the surfaces where deterministic was not as possible, TV out of home, et cetera, still strongly relied on panel based because that's the best there was. But as a function of the popularity of being able to measure exactly who saw your ad and what they did right after, the relative budgets for those less, you know, measurable mediums went down. And so at the startup scale, you've probably noticed this podcast advertising can be very effective. It's very hard to measure deterministically mm-hmm. the success of it, and therefore it's been historically underutilized by growth marketers like you or I. Same thing, you know, with TV or out of home. It's not that it's not an effective medium at all. It's that on the specific deterministic measurement framework that is really in vogue in, call it 2015, it's harder to measure. And so Mm -hmm. it gets less play. And so that's my kind of take on maybe the 2010 to 2020 era. My take on the 2020 and beyond era is that kind of cool technology, number one, the modern panel emerges, and that allows for increasing use of panel-based measurement, to actually inform decisions. And so what I mean here is, look, what's, what's the modern panel? Well, there's a bunch of ways to collect user data now with explicit opt-in. You might build a utility. And so I'll give you a couple examples. If you're trying to c- collect data on what people are watching, go build a TV guide and get 10 million people to sign up to the TV guide and say, yeah, in order to offer me better recommendations on what I should watch, you can track my history on what I press mm-hmm. on, on the remote control. If you want I don't know, call it a credit card data, go build a budgeting app and say, hey, if you give us your credit card data, we'll, bu- we'll build a budgeting app and help you save money, right? Mm-hmm. There's a utility-based aspect to building panels today that just didn't exist when you were actually asking people, paying people directly to, to fill out a survey. That's like the innovation that's unlocked the kind of 10 million person panel and not the 50,000 person panel. Based on that, I mean, just think about the same mechanics, right? You actually can cohort, you actually can ask, tell me more about this user that lives in this city that purchased goods from this store and that store. What was their behavior over time? And so then if you're a brand introducing advertising, you can ask something like, did I claim wallet share of that user after my ad, right? You you can basically introduce an ad and you can say, well they were spending fifty percent of their dollars on the gap and fifty percent on the banana on Banana Republic mm-hmm. and they were spending a hundred dollars well, after flooding that you know area with ads, you actually can say well they're either still spending a hundred on total retail they're spending fifty on gap still but they transition that entire other 50 to bonobos right if you're the bonobos marketer or Maybe they're spending 130 instead of 100, and so we actually increase the size of their wallet for this category. You actually can start to do that type of stuff given the scale of modern based panels, and I think that's the big unlock for today's marketer. Whereas right now they're relying purely on deterministic marketing to do stuff like that, they actually can rely on probabilistic marketing, and, and the benefit here is that the companies that own the modern panels and the probabilistic marketing around them are not incentivized to create a black box so they can actually mm-hmm. understand the why behind the decision rather than press a button and get an LTV score in Facebook, which is you know, what right. you and I have probably done a bunch of, which I think might be a silver line, like a, a net positive versus the deterministic era.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think my viewpoint here is that you know these avenues for growth always existed, right? And they can be very effective, right? And I mean, like out of home, TV, radio, podcasting, just even doing PR, you know, you can invest money there and you can, with reasonably high degree of confidence, understand what the economic impact of that expenditure was on your business, right? You can do that, it's hard. It's just really hard. And no companies were ever incentivized to build those tools or that infrastructure because it, Facebook made it really easy to just scale up. And they said, and don't worry, it's deterministic, right? And I'm not blaming Facebook, but like in a lot of ways it was, right? But like the ecosystem changed and and it's not just Facebook. All these, these platforms are really easy to use, right? And you didn't have to do any measurement. The measurement was done for you. And so it was just really easy and straightforward and frictionless to measure the performance. Whereas, okay, if we go after out of home, you know, if we go after TV, we've got to build a whole apparatus around that, that allows us to measure it and that's very difficult to do and it's also like a totally different um field of expertise that's data science that's not media buying right what we have is a team of media buyers and we have a team of creative designers and we don't have a big data science team because well facebook's our data science team or whatever measurement companies are data science team and that is changing or that the ability to do that has been diminished right and so now it's like well okay the good news is, yes, you do have this gigantic pool of ad impressions that were sort of heretofore unexplored and you can explore them. But now you do have to do the work of building the measurement or, you know, there's, again, that primordial soup of companies, antenna of which antennas one that is coming to markets to do that for you. And, and that's, that's good news, I think. Because if, yeah. if the sort of takeaway from this was just that, yeah, all the channels that are available to you to do advertising on are basically becoming desiccated and will exist at sort of like half, efficiency going forward. And that's depressing. But the reality is that, well, there's this whole other unexplored area that that you can now access and and the tools to support that will emerge because that's just what capitalism does. Right.
1: Yeah. That's such a good point. It's like they were never actually that worse. You know, they might've been incrementally worse, less effective. They were just more poorly measured because you would have had to in-house the measurement expertise and the pain of doing that was actually like, we, we kind of gave ourselves a pass on, on actually just going through the pain by saying they're not as effective as, you know, putting all my money on Facebook or whatever it might be. We actually never tested whether that was true, maybe.
0: No, no. And people might, and, and for certain products, it might've been way more efficient, like from a, on a dollar basis to go after the out of home stuff and to just have like kind of a more of a media mixed model style measurement approach. Mm-hmm right instead of hoping that these measurement techniques really were deterministic right but the thing is like there's a lot of low hanging fruit out there that can improve the performance of a lot of these sort of like non direct response campaigns right i always cringe i listen to a lot of podcasts and i cringe when i hear these ads and they're not even setting up the, the people to like a dedicated landing like, page yeah. and it's like yeah, yeah. are you kidding me like yeah. how, how that's just that's
1: table stakes like that's just amateur you know it's what you well it's what you said if you're viewing it as the opposite of performance marketing then you don't right. try to apply first principles of performance marketing yeah like you know trackable link whereas if if you are then then you actually can get some pretty decent measurement if you if you enhance a little bit of that infrastructure
0: yeah well that's i think that's a good segue into what I want to bring up next you talked about these techniques that the measurement companies themselves can use to get these panels to be more like very, very indicative, right. Of the sort of total population. Can you talk about some of that? Like from the marketer side, that's exactly it. You know, you've got the, the landing, the dedicated landing page for the podcast. Right. So that's, you know, some people don't go there. They just open up their app store or whatever, and they go direct, but a lot of them do, but you can adjust for that. Then there's, you know, how did you hear about us? Survey pops open as soon as they enter the app, you can do that kind of stuff. Just talk to me about like what kind of stuff, the measurement companies can do to to sort of bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, I think there's a a, a very adjacent thread here, which maybe that's like, this is like cool technology number two, but the kind of modern data clean room. And if you're thinking about joining a bunch of different data points together, like, what do you need? What do they buy? Right? You can get that from the purchase data. Like I, I said, there's modern panels that have everyone's credit card data. And by the way, those people are very explicitly opted into that. Then what do you need to know? Well... All of the demographics around those credit card, those credit card, uh, those buyers, right? Well, you can actually join that in, right? There's credit bureaus out there, there's Axiom, right, that have a list of every American and their demographic profiles, right? So now you have everything they bought and who they are, right, in in general. And then I think the third part, which is actually maybe the key unlock and a lot of these primordial companies, us included, are, are building here is industry specific, context, like if you're a subscription business, what else are they subscribed to? Or what did they just cancel, right? If you're trying to figure out who should we go after as a marketer? And so the clean room has existed for a while. I think LiveRamp is probably the most popular one, but, you know, Snowflake Mm -hmm. and Infosum and some of these, I think what they call, you know, zero-party data clean rooms, maybe I'll pick your brain on that in a second, are are emerging. And you can actually connect these various explicitly opted-in, privacy-compliant Data sources. And now what you're looking at is a user profile or a user segment profile of where do they buy? Who are they? And then some, you know, industry specific stuff like what else are they subscribed to? And if you're a marketer trying to say, figure out who's the best person for me to spend my marketing dollar on right now? And you're, you're a subscription company. Well, maybe you want a group of people that spend a lot of money on their credit card that are from a demographic profile that fits the core persona of your actual product and who have demonstrated the propensity not to just churn and burn services from the kind of subscription specific part of the data source. And if you can actually join your data against that user profile, you can start to form some really incredible segments of this is the ideal person that I want to go spend money against and then the second part of that equation which i'm not the expert on is how do you activate against that right how do you actually take that audience you've built and spend against it on a billboard or tv or facebook as it were but i know that problem's been solved a million times over so i'm, I'm confident it gets solved again in in this ecosystem but that's what's exciting to me is i actually think you can do that thing just as well or, or well enough in this kind of new emerging ecosystem and you know, like I promise not to talk about antenna too much here, but I think what I'm excited about is that if you look at like you know Snowflake or any of these big modern data clean room cloud companies, they're all forming industry solutions group, right? The media and entertainment team, the CPG team. And I think they, what they realize is, whoa, we actually can join all of this data together, but it needs to be done in a brand or an industry specific way. With the data that's relevant to them, you know, healthcare and CPG would want totally different data points. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff, you know, from people from each of these industries that say, hey, I know exactly the type of data we should provide to you because I was the marketer doing it, you know, in this industry. So that's kind of where I, I see us in the ecosystem.
0: And by the way, there's there's no prohibition on uh, talking about your company. I, I just, uh, you know, sometimes I listen to the po- these podcasts and it's just like, you know, the head of sales at Company X and it's like, oh my God, like this is useless. And I turn it off. <laughs> like, no, no, this, this discussion is far from uh, that uh, terrain. Uh, one, one thing I want to talk about is I feel like there's kind of three ways that this kind of data gets used in this new environment, right? And let me know if there's more or if I've got these totally wrong, right? I mean, like I come from, you know, the world of mobile gaming, which is a little bit, unique in that a given company has a lot of products in market and they're always building new ones right it's not like i'm not, I'm not a single product company where yeah. I've got my product and it exists in a sort of like a perennial live state right like there's always new launches coming right so like if I think about the three use cases one of which is probably just unique to mobile gaming is in the first case just trying to understand which audience you want to build the product for what is an appropriate audience for this type of product? Or how do I take this kind of idea for a product I have and adapt it to an audience that is attractive? The second is how do I build creative, ad creative to reach that audience without, you know, with the kind of cold start problem, which existed, you know, in that 2010 to 2020 period too. But that was quickly sort of surmounted with just kind of real-time feedback from the campaign feedback loop, right? So but now it's not, right? Now it's not. And so you actually have to be really thoughtful, kind of a priori, what audiences should I even target? And how do I build creative to reach them? And that gets into like more of a qualitative methodology, but there is data to seed those ideas, right? Which is exactly this, exactly like panel data. And then the third is, okay, well, how do I use this data to actually optimize campaigns, right? So I'm, I'm doing media buying, I'm spending against these campaigns. And how do I use this data to inform those spend decisions. So maybe kind of walk us through each of those use cases or let me know if I've got them totally wrong and and I missed some really important ones. I
1: I love that framing. I think like your first one was the strategic planning element, right? Like what should it be on a longer cycle, right? Like a corporate strategy team might be, be really obsessing about that. And, you know, like market information, market landscape information has always been a primary determine you know input into a product development process, and so, um, and so you know this type of data. Hey, what kind of users use this product versus that product that's already in market? How many of those similar products can they take at once? Is it a complementary or a supplementary good? What price are products like this generally at? And what's the churn profile? So I can start to understand the LTV to CAC economics that I might expect under success conditions. Those are all things that are absolutely possible. And then you, you kind of move to your second one, which I, have you written something about this? I think this is where we probably get worse. The real-time feedback loop doesn't exist and it probably never will. And, and it you know for all of the silver linings I've said, this is probably pl- a place where we just get worse. And look, I think what happens is the role of the growth marketer changes a little bit. And mm-hmm. it's not, test and learn takes a different context, right? It's not yeah. a thousand experiments and you pick one. It's five much more thoroughly developed experiments and you pick one. Mm-hmm. That's fine. It's not worse. It's just slightly different. Maybe one click closer to Mad Men than Math Men. The third is really interesting to me, and I think probably where we're spending a lot of our kind of like new product development, brain power, which is how do you start to use this stuff in the world of action? And so the way I'm thinking about it, the way we're thinking about it is, these brands are actually the good thing. They're actually really sophisticated at using their data to make product and marketing decisions in a very kind of tactical way, right? If you stop using, let's use Peloton, if you stop using the bike, we know what we're going to do to get you on the bike again, because we know that not using the bike is a churn signal, right? And there's a thousand different examples like that. And so they're really sophisticated on using the first party data they already have to make those sorts of decisions. Where they're not sophisticated is what do you do off the bike? And how does that actually impact behavior on the on our service, Peloton, in, in this example, and I think that's where, well, if they knew you just subscribed to Tonal, that would be a really strong indicator of a type of lifecycle marketing they needed to do. Or if they were trying to give their loyal customers a really sweet deal and bundle with another service, right? And they were trying to understand what else do our loyalists right now pay for, and can we go bundle and offer that to them for free to prevent churn. You'd be able to do that if you were actually able to enrich or append sort of market data to your own first party data. And so those are two kind of lifecycle churn prevention illustrations rather than user acquisition illustrations. But you could imagine the same thing. We know that our users tend, our most loyal users tend to subscribe to these different services. Let's go find people in the ecosystem that are likely to be subscribed to those services and target ads at them, right? Yeah. You can do that because you're talking about a segment. You're not talking about anything that's unique to one individual, right? It doesn't matter if they have freckles or not. It just matters whether they're subscribed to that bucket of services that you associate with loyalty. That stuff is still possible. And I think you're, you're probably right. We need to build a little bit of the plumbing because we've been relying on a black box to do that plumbing yeah. for us until pretty recently. And I think that's going to be a really interesting challenge.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you, you bring up like, they have freckles or, you know, whatever they're left. And like, what's funny about, I've heard so many weird, like kind of just fantasies about like what these platforms were capable of doing. Like, you know, what, what like Facebook, Facebook in particular was capable of doing. That was just obviously not <laughs> true, right? Like I, there was some, there was some Twitter thread that went like pretty viral a while back. And some guy was saying like, Hey, come on. A lot of people think Facebook listens to your phone, but they don't do that. Come on. Don't be silly. What they actually do is if you meet with a friend of yours, Facebook knows that your phone was in proximity of theirs and it can look at your feed behaviors and and then it'll borrow some of the feed behaviors from your friend and apply them to you when they target ads. And I'm like, that is so creepy and so much worse than listening to your phone It's like tracking you (laughs) in real time in real life and associating you with the people that you're nearby. Like that's insane, and I remember I read, I listened one time. This guy who was on Sam Harris's podcast actually, and he was talking about how surveillance advertising and how invasive it was. And he said, like, yeah, they can track the gait of your stride, like Facebook can, and then that's like a targeting vector, right? Or that, that's a that, yeah. that's a targeting feature. It's like <laughs> oh, this guy's got a, a long stride, and there's all these other associations they make on the basis of your like no, They can't do that. Your battery would die and. 20 minutes if they were tracking yeah.
1: the way your leg moved with your the unfortunate anyway. truth about us humans is that we're just insanely predictable this is very very predictable yes yeah, <laughs> just super uh, boring and predictable
0: yeah, exactly it, anyway it's that was just a, a rant but i got triggered but no i mean what what you're saying is really interesting and i think you know the point about on the creative front right if you think about like the sort and and i have i've written about this a little bit because I wrote this piece a couple of years ago that that was like the first big, like viral thing that I, that I ever wrote. And it was like how to deploy creative effectively. Right. And that's it the was one. Yeah, that's the, one. Yeah. the essence of it was just unpacking the functional organization of these platforms, right? Like this is how they do it. They just make ever smaller, ever more sort of specific audience definition starting from like a kind of cold start, just comp basis. And then they get more and more specific and then they pair and the more creative you give them, the more combinations of ever more specific audience and specific piece of creative they can make to test, right? And that was the right approach, right? Like that was the right approach four years ago, three years ago, right? Pre-ATT, right? So that was the right approach. And so there was not, the creative team didn't need to even necessarily have people on it, right? So the last kind of company I worked for before I went like freelance or whatever, or whatever I do now, uh, before I do whatever I I do now, it, we built an automated system to, to produce creative and deploy it. Like you just fed it. Yeah. Pieces imagery. You just fed it, video clips and imagery and it paired it all together. It just made combinations. It made, made, uh, iterations on, you know, some kind of template that you had to provide it with, but there was no, like we had, I mean, we had a creative director, but maybe we didn't, maybe the, the next sort of step in that direction is not even have a creative director. You actually don't want to be burdened right? Yeah. With those preconceived notions. Those, yeah. Exactly. And now we're just moving in the totally opposite direction of that, which is like, no, these creative choices need to be highly informed by sort of like qualitative decision-making. And there should be a person that's kind of an expert on that, right? And, and how do you do these associations? We well, have to start from the basis of an audience. Right. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's panel data like like antenna provides like that's that's the starting point. You can't do the conveyor belt anymore. You, you can't just have this machinery that just procedurally creates ad creative and could create any number of combinations, some of which are totally nonsensical and look like just a randomly generated procedurally generated art. Right. Like that as they should. But some of them, it's the million monkeys on typewriters thing. Right. Except you got a lot more than a million monkeys in the sort of procedural environment that we had. Yeah. Right. And so that just doesn't work anymore. Because not only do you not get the user level feedback, but it's also there's a lot of limitations imposed on even just a number of campaigns that you can spin up on iOS, for instance. Because they need to make sure that you don't get so fine grained with the deployment of the campaigns that you could actually like just have one campaign per
1: person, yeah, right? Kind of, yeah, per person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a really but, great point. And you know what? I, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. No, I mean, just, I guess, just have you seen? that be a use case? Have you seen people say, look, we use this data because it's the only starting point we have. We can't start from a totally clean slate because we don't have the money to test. Because now we're talking about, we're going down a path with creative production. We're going down a path with like building a narrative in our creative to reach a specific audience. And A, there's a lag time now. It's not the real-time feedback loop you got before us. There's a lag time. There's kind of a minimum amount of data that you need to get. Right, especially on iOS, you start talking about SK Ad Network. You need a minimum amount of conversions before the conversion values start getting sent back. That kind of so there's, there's, a, there's a bigger sort of like uh, more robustness needed in just the data sets in order to draw conclusions. And there's got to be more like conceptual variety versus just like variational iterations, right? So have you seen people like adopt that use case when they come to
1: you? We actually we haven't. It's really interesting when we talk a lot about things like this, and our perspective is that the market's not actually there yet in in many ways. And so you'll see this. There'll be some anytime there's a new distribution channel or, or whatever it might be. There's new brands that emerge that are extremely native to programming for that distribution channel. I think what you'll see is you'll see new consumer brands emerge any day now, almost that are running their marketing process exactly like you describe, and that's actually their edge, right? They're selling a commodity product. It might be the exact right. same product they they sold at the last company, but there's very few people doing that, and yeah. so where our data comes in is is something like marketplace intelligence. You've got to kind of be at a scale where that matters to you, right? In order to, in order to think about that. And the people that are doing that this way right now are spending a hundred dollars on advertising or whatever it might be because Mm. they're brand new companies. I think though, it's going to take a cycle, but as all of the players in the ecosystem, whether it's direct to consumer brands or streaming companies or whatever it might be, start to adopt this way of going to market they will do exactly what you're saying which is they'll start with the data they'll use the data in the actual algorithms you know enriching their own first-party data and then they'll measure the effectiveness on whether it worked using that same panel-based approach did it prevent churns right whatever you want to whatever your kind of optimization metric is and then you start to get to like kind of a closed loop there ecosystem but the thing you don't have in the closed loop which is new is the actual advertising surface Right. So that's right. the part that's getting fragmented in, in this cycle. Whereas Facebook, I think I guess truly did have that closed loop.
0: Yeah. When I think about like the kind of canonical D to C brand, it's Dollar Shave Club, right? Do you think there's a different one like that that's like the kind yeah, like that? that yeah, I love that one. Where I saw that category or I call it the bit that business model, where I saw it evolve was Dollar Shave Club was brilliant. Cause it's my target is men. That's it. And let's make really engaging, memorable ads. That's the company, right? Get a commodity product, charge a premium price for it, spin up really, really great advertising. And then that's, we got a business model, right? And then what you saw there was that the products themselves became more and more and more and more specific to like very kind of particular audiences, right? And then you had like cat pajamas or you had whatever... You know, very sort of like niche product, and that was made possible because Facebook, because Facebook would find those relevant audience for. It. But you scaled to a certain point, right? And I wrote, I've gotten to five hundred k a month in at Facebook ad spend. What now? Because Facebook yeah. could take you to that very easily, right? Because it knew that that sort of sub audience that that was you know the most relevant for your product. You find it very quickly. But scaling beyond that almost was impossible, right? I had that sort of thread in that article, but there's another one called like the seductive allure of Facebook's algorithm or something like that. And I was talking about that because there, there was a piece that I was piggybacking off of in the New York times where some company had done that they had scaled the company, like, you know, hockey stick shaped growth, raised a big round, and then they just maxed out. They had yeah. cause it was like a small TAM, right? It was a very niche yeah. product and they just couldn't scale it anymore. And then they had to actually start building a catalog of products and the products had to be broader and then they had to start going the discount route. And I mean, you saw what happened with Casper. I mean, that's even still a fairly large tam right but like that's the kind of thing you buy once every five years or something and and so you're not doing a whole lot of repeat purchasing and they had to diversify and they went retail it's like they almost like threw the ddc book away at some point yeah because you have to right and i'm just wondering if we go back like okay well this the cat pajamas and spinning that up to 100k of ad spend on facebook a month in like you know in six weeks that's not happening again like there's no way you're going to find the cat pajama audience, right, efficiently. And so now I think we do kind of take another step back towards like the Dollar Shave Club. Like I build products for men and that's all I need to do to advertise. And then like, so on that basis, you know, I can use kind of panel data to... Evaluate the performance of my campaigns and like make decisions around pricing, make decisions around targeting, all that kind of stuff. Because you're not doing the cap, the cat pajama, you know, reaching that audience efficiently starting at a zero basis is gone forever. Do you agree with that?
1: You're, yes, I, I think you're right. Like the hyper niche focused digital brand is go- gone forever. I think there's there's a lot of folks though have gone one step further with that even, and they've said like direct to consumer brands are gone forever. And I don't actually. Agree with that. I think like in in any commerce ecosystem and the reason, you know, the reason they're saying that is basically, well, if your CAC goes up by X percent on an already thin unit economics business, you got problems. There's a couple of counters. First, what we found throughout this discussion is, well, you might actually have other avenues with the same CAC or even a better CAC that you just never used because they were not as easily measurable under the old infrastructure. So. Maybe your CAC actually doesn't go up by, by, by whatever you think. But um, I think there's always going to be people that are trying to build outside of aggregators, right? And there's always going to be success cases of that, like there are in every other single kind of commerce paradigm ever. Mm-hmm. Look, the aggregators will probably gobble up a ton of those niche brands as well. And there will be a new PNG, a new you know, Unilever, whatever you want to call it. That's fine too forget his name, but there's a guy on on Twitter though, and this is why we're so bullish on kind of recurring. And I don't just mean monthly subscription, I mean repeat purchase type models. Well, the way to still build a direct-to-consumer business in a world of increasing CAC is to increase the LTV and repeat purchase cycle and all that. And it's almost like the kind of like truism around like constraints, creativity. Like when you have Facebook marketing, you don't actually need to figure out a really strong recurring model. When you're about to go bankrupt because your tax just went up 40, 50% and your unit economics went upside down, you better figure out a real true allegiance model or you're going out of business. So I think we're kind of on the cusp of seeing some really exciting, recurring direct business models in a way that's just like much more sophisticated than kind of V1 monthly subscription, in in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I think even, you know, what I saw in gaming subscriptions which is different than cpg but the subscription signal was probably one of the most powerful in terms of just like affinity for the product and so like people are generally willing to spend a lot more right a subscriber is willing to be upsold uh, of course they're willing to be upsold but like they're in a lot of cases they're hungry for it to be upsold they want you to provide them with more value right and so how do you do that Now we see with like Netflix and gaming, right? That's kind of one avenue for that. Now that's probably a different strategy. That's, you know, their churn is already very low. There's not a whole lot they can do there. They've got to justify the price increases. I think they'll probably end up stratifying the subscription price points and finding ways to just add more value on top so they can charge more. But nonetheless, there's a lot of things you can do when you get there. But if you know, if you wait to that moment, you wait for the Casper moment. It's like, well, okay, you know, especially with the CPG product, it takes a long time to spin those up. Digital products are a lot faster to get to market. Yeah. But um, okay, we, there's so many more things I would love to talk to you about. We're running up on the hour. Tell us where can people find you? How can they engage with your company? How can they engage with you personally? Where can people learn more about Antenna? What? How can people just learn more about you?
1: Well, you can find the Antenna at Antenna.live, L-I-V-E. Antenna.com was probably taken, but we should buy that domain name eventually. And then uh, you can find me occasionally on Twitter at Ramiz Tase, R-A-M-E-E-Z-T-A-S-E. And Great. by the way, check out the careers page. We're, we're hired a lot. Yeah, just raise around round <laughs> and build a team, just scaling team. Yeah. Scaling the team. We're a Motley squad of just about 30 right now. And we'll definitely scale that significantly this
0: year. And you're, you're bi-coastal, right? So you're based in New York, a lot of teams in LA.
1: We've got uh, West Coast, Midwest, East Coast, a couple of Europeans. So we are we were three people when uh, Shelter in Place Part 1 took place. And so we truly oh. are remote first company in that regard.
0: Yeah. That's great. All right, Ramiz, thank you for this uh, very interesting conversation. And uh, I'll see you on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Cheers. Bye.